Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by McSweeney's, publisher of Half a Life by Darren Strauss, a TNB book club pick and the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. The San Francisco Chronicle says, quote, Strauss crafts a simple yet remarkable story about pain and guilt, maturity and responsibility, hope and understanding. And Entertainment Weekly says, quote, too many memoirs suffer from a lack of perspective, but Strauss explores memory, guilt and coming of age from a mature vantage point that leads to enormous insight. You may have heard Strauss tell this tale on NPR's This American Life. Here's the written version by a terrific storyteller who doesn't waste a word. That's Half a Life by Darren Strauss, available now from McSweeney's. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. My name is Brad Listy. Thank you very much for being here and tuning into the program. It's good to be with you. It's almost December. Tomorrow is December 1st. Time is flying. Where is the year gone? This happens every year. Time is getting sucked into the past. We are careening forward into the void. There is no stopping us, but there is no such thing as the past. And we need to remember that life is just a never-ending series of nows. It's happening. I understand this intellectually. I think this is something that, you know, I understand, but it's also something that I perpetually forget. The past is nothing more than an imperfect memory of what might have been. And uh, the future is a mind projection of a future now. I get that. I think I get that. Time is a mental construct. It doesn't, ex you know, it doesn't exist. We create it. What am I talking about? Uh, the guest today is Darren Strauss. He's the author of four books, three novels and a memoir. Uh, the fiction includes Chang and Ang, the critically acclaimed novel about the famous conjoined twins, The Real McCoy, uh, and a book called More Than It Hurts You. And most recently, he's published a memoir. It's Half a Life, published by McSweeney's, sponsor of today's show. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award. It's a great publishing success story, and it's a book that I was scared to read. Uh, this happens to me sometimes. I'm currently scared to read Joan Didion's new book, Blue Nights. 
And, you know, I know that I'm going to like it. I like pretty much everything she writes, but I also know that it's going to be painful. And uh, that was the case with Half a Life. My daughter was really young when it was, uh, you know, when I had it on my desk, it was a TMB book club pick. I knew that I had to read it. I wanted to read it, but yet I, I circled it. I looked at it. It was on my desk. It was mocking me. I couldn't bring myself to pick it up because I knew that it was going to be hard. And then, you know, one night I was up at some ungodly hour. It was like three or four in the morning. My daughter was crying. I went into her nursery. I rocked her down, put her back to sleep. And then I was awake and I knew it. And I went into my office thinking I would do some work and half a life was sitting there and I picked it up and I sat down in my chair and I read it straight through from about four in the morning until sunrise, which incidentally is the perfect time to read this book. Uh, Darren has quite a story to tell. It's about an accident that he had as a teenager. For those of you who are unaware, uh, you know, he was a senior in high school, 18 years old. He was driving his car, going to play miniature golf with some friends. And, uh, there was a girl riding her bike with some of her friends on the side of the road. Uh, she suddenly swerved into his lane of traffic. He hit her and she died. And, uh, you know, it was a no fault accident. He was totally sober and it was just this terrible tragedy. So it's about the heaviest thing you can, uh, you can think of. And half a life explores the accident itself. It explores the aftermath, the guilt, the, the grief, the forgiveness, you name it. And it's a terrific book. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about all of it in just a moment, uh, Darren and I. So, you know, with that in mind, it's hard to do my normal preamble, uh, because normally I, I sort of joke around here. I ramble, uh, I, I know that I'm rambling now, but I guess I ramble in a bit of a different way under normal circumstances, but you know, I don't want to be inappropriate or out of sync with the subject matter. Uh, so, you know, what do you say? You know, your heart just kind of hurts thinking about something like this. Few things could be worse, uh, than an accident that takes the life of anybody, but especially a young person, uh, just 16. And, uh, you know, you think of her, of her poor parents, you think of her family and the miserableness, uh, of it all. So, you know, the book is, is really impressive. And I think what's impressive to me about it is the level of intellectual rigor involved, the strength of Darren's analysis, the clear eyed nature of it, uh, and, and sort of the ruthlessness with which he analyzes his own behavior, his own thoughts and his own feelings. And, you know, he doesn't give himself an out. And I think that's what makes it such an, an exhilarating reading experience because it's so honest and it's so beautifully rendered. And he talks about things that people think deeply, but don't normally say, and, you know, it's really sensitive stuff. Uh, to give you an example, he talks about the performative aspects of grief and how he cried at the, at the funeral and how, you know, sure, he felt sadness, but he also felt relief because he knew that he was supposed to be crying. You know, here he is, 18, and totally overwhelmed, and he's at this poor girl's funeral, and he's terrified not to cry. People are looking at him, or he thinks they are, and uh, her parents are there, and, and he's sad, but he's also deeply relieved to be able to cry because he feels like he has to. He feels like he has to perform. And, you know, those kinds of revelations and examinations are you know, for me, at least what make the book so great. And, you know, they, they kind of make me, uh, you know, in this little bit here today, they make me want to raise my game almost because it's a pretty amazing level of honesty. And, uh, you know, it, it also makes me think about memoir and how, when I read a book like this, uh, a memoir about somebody who's lived through something extreme, 
you know, there's, there's almost a part of me when I read books like this, or I even read about books like this, that feels envy and, and, you know, envy might not exactly be the right word, but it's close and it's weird. And, you know, I think this might happen with other people, with other writers where, you know, here, here Darren is, and he's gone through this awful thing and he's been through this fire. And when I read a book like this, I find myself in some corner of my brain thinking, I've never been anywhere near a fire like this. And I think to myself, well, Darren can handle a fire like this. He, he survived. He can survive it. And I find myself wondering, could I do the same? And feeling, uh, you know, feeling uh, some anxiety about not knowing. And then there, you know, then there's this like absurd comparison thing that goes on where I start to think about my past. And I think about my childhood and like, what, what happened to me? You know, and I think about like seventh grade, the first day of seventh grade, I'm nervous. I'm walking into school first day. Everybody's there. I walk in the door into this big, long corridor that ran the, like the width of the school building. And I remember there was this big pack of students there, uh, classmates of mine, a bunch of boys, and they were in a pack, like kind of standing in a U shape. And I remember working my way through the crowd and they're all kind of freaking out. And they're pointing at the ground. And when I break through the front line of the crowd, I see that there's this giant spider crawling on the carpet. And it was white with black stripes. I can still see it. It's sort of like a zebra spider. And it was this, you know, crazy looking big spider. And I'm thinking that it came in from outside. I'm thinking that it entered the building and everybody was freaking out about it. And so in this kind of like hormonal surge of energy, this, this weird nervous response, I broke out of the crowd and ran up and I jumped on this, you know, jumped into the air and I crushed this spider. I stomped on it thinking that I was saving the day. And I remember turning around and seeing all these faces. And, and one of my buddies looked at me and I'll, I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he just went, what the fuck? And, you know, it was just faces of shock and disgust. And it turned out that the spider was actually somebody's pet spider. It was this kid's pet spider. He'd found it in his, you know, in his basement or something and he brought it to school uh, to like show to his biology class. And so next thing I know, I'm getting pulled down into the principal's office. It's the first day of school. I've been there for like 10 minutes and I'm down in the office getting reprimanded. And then I, I remember I, the vice principal escorted me to this kid's classroom to his science class. And, uh, you know, he's crying in the hallway and I'm apologizing to him, telling him I'm sorry. And, you know, it became this like sort of no notorious thing. Uh, I was looking through my yearbook from that year recently and, uh, you know, I, I had forgotten about this, but all my classmates, you know, a bunch of them had written about it in the yearbook. Even at the end of the year, they were still making fun of me for it, drawing pictures of the spider and telling me that this spider was never going to forgive me and it would haunt me and all the rest. So, you know, I'm reading just to try to draw this or complete this, this absurd circle. I'm reading half a life and I'm actually thinking about this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how can I write a, a memoir about a goddamn spider? I have nothing to write about. I haven't survived anything. I haven't been through any fires. And, uh, you know, this isn't exactly true. It's not like my life has been completely easy. But by comparison, you know, there is no comparison. And, uh, you know, bad stuff happens to everybody, eventually at least. But it does seem like sometimes more bad stuff happens to a certain person. Certain people get an unusual amount of it. And memoirs seem to be born out of this, you know, they, or at least they often do. They're often born out of big loss or intense experience of one kind or another, 
or you know maybe somebody leads some kind of really interesting fabulous celebrity life or whatever it is but you know i, I think about a writer like victor frankel or any of the holocaust writers eli wiesel the necessity of those stories the beauty with which they're written and then you know there's like the then i think about the absurdity of my response or at least the, you know partial response you know where on the one hand i'm appropriate I'm, I'm reverent, I'm grateful, I'm growing from the perspective of other people. Uh, and then on the other hand, I'm small and petty and just utterly ridiculous, you know, thinking to myself, well, I guess I'll never have a concentration camp experience. You know, there goes my Holocaust memoir, you know, like just, it's bizarre. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm the only one who goes through this, but it's my particular experience. I don't want to overstate it, but I do want to talk about it because it is real and, you know, in a way, I guess I have to hope that I never have enough material to write a memoir or at least a certain kind of memoir. Uh, and, you know, maybe this podcast in some uh, some small way is almost functioning as a memoir where I'm sitting here in my home office discussing the mundane psychodrama of my own existence, sitting around feeling envious of other people's quagmires, you know, so maybe that's my quagmire. Everybody has quagmires, and uh, I really like the word quagmire. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I'm curious to know, like, I guess like one of the things that I would say is that you've written a book like Half a Life, which, which, uh, you know, has had a great, uh, it's a great publishing success story, won the National Book Critics Circle Award and, you know, was kind of hailed, uh, just about everywhere. Uh, you know, you have achieved something that's sort of a dream of mine in that you wrote a really short book that weighs a lot. Uh, oh, thanks, man. I was, I really was lucky with that and it almost didn't happen. Um, but that, yeah, thanks for being tonight about it. I mean, I was going to write the book. Uh, I mean, I told the story a bunch of times. I, I feel bad because I, I had a great editor at Penguin. Um, but I didn't do the book with Penguin. I did it with McSweeney's. And it was kind of Penguin's fault. It wasn't my editor's fault. My editor was, uh, was a great editor, but uh, his boss said that the book has to be at a certain lot. And I, I wanted to write a short book. So I told my editor, I'm, I'm going to write a book about this accident. I've never talked about it before. The book is about a, a car accident I was in high school. And I said, I don't want to write a regular memoir. I don't want to write, you know, my, my whole life. I just want to focus on this one thing because I feel like I have something to say about it, finally. 
but you know, I don't know if it's going to be more than 40 or 50 pages. And he said, that's fine. And then his boss um, said, actually, it needs to be 200 pages because that's just what we're thinking a paper app should be. And I said, okay, I guess I went through the book then. Um, no, no, why? I I mean, let me stop you. I mean, you said 40 or 50 pages, and you said this before you had written a word of it? Yeah. Because I felt like I didn't want to write a long book about it. I mean, you, you mentioned the short book that, that weighs a lot. That's kind of what I had in mind. I thought, you know, I don't want to write. I'm not a big fan of uh, of most memoirs. I mean, that's kind of a shitty thing to say. That there are some great memoirs out there, obviously. And I just wrote this memoir, so it's kind of shitty. to write a memoir, and um, you know, as you mentioned, I was lucky enough to get an award. So that's kind of shitty to be able to take someone an award for memoir writing and then say I don't like memoirs. <laughs> but I, I really am. Uh, I mean, uh, I feel like I'm a novelist and I love fiction. And so when memoirs don't work, I feel like they're too unfocused or too um, self-forgiving. So I wanted to do the opposite with this book. I wanted just to focus on this one thing. Cause I felt like my life isn't that interesting other than this one event. And um, so they said they wanted to do more a more um, traditional memoir. And so I said, you know, screw it. I just won't do it. And then um, McSweeney said, well, we'll do it. Because I, I knew um, Dave a little bit. Uh, and I guess my agent was talking to someone at McSweeney's about it. And they said, we don't care. We 40-page book sounds fun to us. Because they're, you know, they're great. They'll do anything that, that is interesting. They don't have that sort of commercial bench that so many, um, so many publishers do. And it's funny because they're doing well without it. And so I think that it proves that just publishing what you think is good is probably smarter than publishing what you think is going to make money. That's right. But anyway, so so um, so I said, okay, great. And that, it ended up being actually 200 pages. But um, I think it's because I didn't feel that commercial pressure to write a certain kind of book that I ended up having more to say than I thought. But it is it is short. I mean, it's 200 pages, but it's, it's 200 pages in the way that like a – homework assignment that's supposed to be 20 pages somehow gets to be 20 pages because the margins are fucked with like the oh, it's courier no it's the book. font it's like the, yeah. you know it's like when you use courier new i used to i used to yeah. do that i used a lot of courier in college <laughs> yeah, this book this is the original title was courier new <laughs> no I, I don't know i mean uh well no but the way to put it the way to put it is that it's a if, if it's a 200 page book it's a one sit read you read this book in one sitting well, it's 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 the first few words actually. I mean, it could have been an eighty or a ninety page book. They they laid it out in a way that was very spare. Right. Uh, but so, so that was um, that's kind of the intention. It was it was supposed to be short, and uh, and it was. Okay, so uh, just to give listeners, I mean, I know you've probably told this story. I mean, you've you've told it in writing, but you've probably told it in countless interviews. But just to give listeners who haven't read Half a Life uh, some idea of what it's about, can you just give like the short version? Of what the sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. talks about, of course, of course, yeah. Um, I was in a, a car accident in high school. I was driving. Um, it was like a month before graduation. I was driving with some friends to shoot um, to shoot miniature golf. It was kind of one of those. It, it, it's kind of a cliche, right? It, it, in the same way that nine eleven was the most beautiful day of that summer of that of that. Fall. I mean, uh, it was a really perfect summer day with some friends, and we were going to go do the the uh, suburban thing of shoot miniature golf on the weekend. But so I was driving in a sort of mini highway. I was in the left lane, 
the right lane was empty and there was a nice cushion on the shoulder and she uh, for no reason out of nowhere just sheared across two lanes of traffic and into my car and and died and it was a few towns over from where I grew up but it turned out that she was a classmate of mine she was a year behind me but we went to the same high school and so I knew her and she died and I, and I went back to school as the kid who had, who had killed a girl from school Ooh. and um uh, and uh, five cars worth of eyewitnesses and the police and the newspaper and everyone said I was not to blame. And I went to the funeral and her parents said, we know it wasn't your fault. We'll never come after you. But whatever you do in your life, you have to do it for two people. You have to live for two people. And then uh, I tried to do that. I didn't really know what it meant, but it seemed important. And then two months later, the parents sued me for millions of dollars. Oh, my God. So, so that's basically the uh, and the story is how 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 you uh, how I lived with that uh, with that guilt and that experience and the reason I think that the book has resonated more than I thought it would I mean I, like, especially when I did it with McSweeney's I thought it was just something I was getting off my chest and it was going to be a little a little uh, a little book and it ended up doing well I think because. The thing I didn't even realize when I started writing it is that it's a much more universal story than, than I realized because it's really about how so many of us feel guilty about something in our lives that we might not be culpable for. I mean, everyone told me I wasn't to blame and that I shouldn't feel guilty, but I did feel guilty. And so I've heard from so many people who have sent me emails about things in their lives that they just feel guilty about or feel grief over, even if it wasn't their fault. Um, Dude, I feel guilty about feeling guilty. I'm, <laughs> no, not, even, well. I'm not even kidding because it's like you read. I'll, I'll read some article about how guilt can be a selfish emotion, and I'm just like, oh my god, you know, like. Yes, like, I know, I know, I know exactly what you feel like. I mean, I feel I feel guilty talking about my guilt in this <laughs> book because I didn't, you know, I didn't lose a loved one. Like her parents, even though they sued me, I didn't. I don't blame them. I mean, they went through something much worse than I do. So when pe- than I did, so when people are like. Um, Oh, I'm so sorry. That must be so hard for you. I, that, that makes me feel guilty because I feel like, well, listen, the girl is dead. I'm alive. Her family had to go through terrible things. So I shouldn't really feel that. Uh, you shouldn't feel bad for me. So, so even now I feel guilty about about feeling guilty or about about people feeling bad for me because it, it guilt is, is, a, is a fucked up thing. And I hadn't, I hadn't seen it dealt with well. There's so many things that I hadn't seen written about that I experienced that I felt like I, I should write about. Like, uh, shock. I mean, I felt like I had never read a, an accurate de- depiction of shock, and so I wanted to talk about that. Or Yeah, that sequence, perform- that sequence in the book, I mean, yeah, it's you, you do a good job of it in the book. <laughs> thanks, thanks. And the, the other thing, the, the main thing that I hadn't seen written about, which, which was interesting to write about, and I think has uh, resonated too, is uh, the performative nature of grief. I mean, like, we all... You know, when you're grieving, yeah, and David Foster Wallace talked about this better than anybody, I think. You know, your brain has 10,000 thoughts a second. Uh, but, you know, your outward presentation is one thing at a time. And so when you're grieving, you don't feel guilt or grief all the time. But you have to kind of perform grief because people expect you to feel guilty and grief, and grief all the time. So, I mean, I was feeling terrible as this girl died. But when I went back to school, I made sure that I cried at the right moments 
or that I looked like I was feeling bad, even if I, at that moment, hadn't been feeling particularly bad, just because I felt like that's what society expected of me. Well, so what, what so, kind of, I mean, like, what moment? Like, can you, like, can you uh, clarify that a bit? Like, this was, like, what, the convocation at school, or? Yeah, there was, uh, I mean, throughout everything. I went to, when I went to a funeral, um, I cried, and I think it was genuine, but I also know that I was so glad that I was crying because I wanted to look like the accident had ruined me because I was going to be in front of her family and friends. Right. So I thought, you better cry now. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I actually did. I think it was legitimate, but I'm sure. That, but there was certainly some relief in there. And at at school during um, during a sort of pre-graduation ceremony, um, the principal went up before the school and said, you know, we lost a student and were um, planting a tree in her honor and everyone was looking at me uh, you know everyone turned to me because I knew I was in the audience and so I got up and left because I wanted to seem like I was overwhelmed by emotion and couldn't sit there and I think that it was a complicated reaction I was overwhelmed by emotion but I was also embarrassed you know I was an 18 year old kid and that is the last thing you want is to have everyone looking at you and uh, was it a, I had big, a, was it a big school was it a big high school it was a small high school, but, you know, a small high school is still a lot of kids. Yeah. I mean, if there, there were 230 kids in each grade, probably, so there was, oh, that's, I, mean, I don't know. That's uh, fairly sizable, I mean. Yeah, or yeah, I, I think there probably were 800 people in the whole school, so it's not that big, but a lot of people would be looking at you when you're an 18-year-old kid, and uh, so it was, just, it, it was just that emotions were always more complicated than, than they appeared. I felt, I did felt. I did feel terrible, and I did feel guilty, and I also felt embarrassed, and I also felt I should look like I feel wrecked, because that's what's expected of me. Mm-hmm. So you're aware of how you're presenting yourself as you're feeling emotions. And so that was something I hadn't seen written about, too. So it was a bunch of stuff that I just wanted to get to get on paper. Well, and you, you know, and that's the other thing about it, is that you're really sort of relentless uh, when it comes to self-critique in the book. You're like You don't give yourself any outs, <laughs> you know, like... And, and you're very honest about, uh, you know, a lot of memoir or, or, or things that you were guarding against in the writing of the book. Like you didn't want to just emote on the page or tell this story as a way of uh, absolving yourself. Or do you know what I'm saying? Like you, you, you. Yeah, no, exactly what you're saying. And thanks for saying that too, because that, that's, I guess, why when I said before I don't like most memoirs, I think that's that's not really fair. Any any book that's good is going to be good. It doesn't matter if it's a novel or a memoir, if the writing is good or honest or whatever. But I think that so many memoirs are are about self forgiveness, and that's just in every in every page. And so that you feel that. And I felt like I had to be harder on myself than anybody anybody reading it would be, or else there's no justification for it. So people have often said, "Hey, you're way too hard on yourself in the book," which I always sort of makes me happy because I feel like, well, then, then I was doing my job because if I'm if I'm easier on myself than the reader is, then then there's no reason to write or read the book, right? I mean, if, if some guy's being too easy on himself. So I wanted to say, here's where I'm being a jerk, or here's where I was inappropriate. I mean, there were parts of the book that my original publisher didn't want to publish, and then, and even it had discussions with Dave Eggers about it when he when McCune was going to put it out, because Dave had, you know, he wrote, his first book was a memoir, and he people came after him for stuff, and he was very sensitive to that, and he said, you know, if you write this in this way, people are going to be mean to you, so you should maybe take, think about taking this part out or that part out. 
Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, a, that's a, a pretty, that's a pretty good, more. that's a pretty good guy to be getting advice from about a memoir, you know, especially it a, was great. No, a memoir. It was great. Yeah, it was. I mean, like he was, he was absolutely the perfect guy. You're absolutely right. But, but I, there were some things he he said he should take out that I kept in, and I, it, he was doing it out of kindness. He wasn't. He was saying this is going to be hard for you. You should take it out. And I felt like, you know, let it be hard for me. This is, the only reason to write the book is to be, is to be hard on myself because like. uh there's a scene early on where, I mean, at the accident site, I was in shock. And so these pretty girls came over and said, hey, what happened? And so I think I, because I hadn't realized the magnitude of what was happening, I kind of flirted with those girls. And that was the scene where Dave was like, listen, that's going to make you look really bad. This girl you're, you hit with your car is lying in the street and you're flirting with these girls. And I said, the only justification for the book is if I keep that in there because I wanted to show that we sometimes have inappropriate thoughts or actions at at, at these key moments. Yeah, no, I mean and that's, that's that, kind of human. You're 18. I mean, you know, or you're you're a kid. I mean, that's that, that to me feels emotionally true. You know, it seems like the kind of thing that somebody at that age in that sort of situation might do, just in in a state of shock. Yeah, I hope so. I, uh, and I think that part of me is writing the book for my 18 year old self, and so like if I had seen that written about, I wouldn't have felt so guilty about it for years, because afterwards, I, of course, remember that and felt terrible. Um, but I think that those kind of moments where publishers would often say, so if Dave said take it out, uh, but then let me keep it in, I'm sure that most most big commercial publishers would have really insisted I take it out, and maybe that's why um, the book resonated with people. Maybe it's not even that it was so well written or anything, but it was just that I was allowed to write these things that, that some editors were to take out. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's such a nightmare scenario. I think everybody can relate to it on some level because I think a lot of people have that fear working on their subconscious level. Like, you know, it, just to be involved in an accident and to go through something like that, it, however it might unfold. Um, but then it's just, I think like the basic honesty, I mean, you, I don't know, it, it, I think for me... I mean, it's some... Sorry, go on. <laughs> I, if I could keep interrupting you, it's your chef. No, it's okay. I was just, I, you know, I was just trying to sort of... I was stumbling to try to articulate why uh, it's so relatable. But, I mean, I just think on a basic human level, you know, it's such a, a painful story. And, uh, you know, it just really it gets at your heart. And then to have somebody working through it honestly and with such great... Um, you know, clarity. Like there, there is like you know the the perspective that you gain through the years on it, and then all the work that you put into writing it is clear. You know, to the reader. Oh. Well, thanks. I mean, a lot of those people I worked with because um because it was so personal, I felt like I needed to show it to people. And I have a friend, uh, David Lipsky, who was sort of key in helping me um, craft it because he was he said, you know, you've got to keep this. Remember, this is a book for readers. It's not just a journal entry. So, um, having having good editors is really helpful. But I think it's relatable too because so many people do think about this. Uh, I mean, there are there are something like forty thousand automobile deaths a year, I and mean, it's crazy that there hasn't been uh, more discussion about it and more books about it. And there are thousands of those deaths are in accidents like mine, where which, you know the police called no fault deaths, where someone is driving and then. Someone else just starts in front of the car and dies, and that is um, thousands of times a year it happens. And I and I hadn't seen anything written about it. And it is a fear so many of us have. 
uh, you know, unfortunately happened happened to me and to this girl. I mean, obviously much more unfortunate for her. I mean, you know, even now I feel guilty saying like, unfortunately happened to me because here I am talking to you and, and she died at 16. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's like, I, I, I would be the exact same way. And, uh, I, it's just, it's sort of, it, it begs for a book like this. I mean, you know, because it's so, it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about for the most obvious reasons, just because it's painful and difficult, but it's also hard to talk about for all these subtler reasons. And I think like the nuanced, uh, you know, examination of grief and guilt, uh, that, you know, that it, that it, uh, that it covers is stuff that everybody feels, but might, might not necessarily have words for. Well, it's funny. I mean, I was never going to even write it as a book. This is my fourth book. I mean, I thought I was going to write only novels and I never, I mean, I actually consciously decided when I was first becoming a writer, did not write about this, you know, write about something as far from this as possible because I just didn't want to deal with it. So my first book was, um, it was called Chang and Ang. It was about conjoined Asian twins in 1811 Siam. And so I thought, well, that's, you know, that's as far from me as I can get, you know, conjoined twins from 1811 Siam. But in fact, I was writing about the accident without realizing it because as I mentioned, um, the girl's mom said to me at the funeral, you have to live your life for two people. Well, that book is kind of all about how the self is is not a definable thing, and how well in that book, I mean, Ang is li- Ang the narrator is living for two people. He mean, he's living for him and his brother. The first sentence of the book is, "This is the end I have feared since we were a child." So he's both two people and one person at the same time. So obviously, I was writing about this without realizing it. So when, yeah, so when did you realize it? You know, because it, like it seems so obvious now in hindsight, but I mean, when did you finally? When did you have the the uh, awareness of that. It was really late. I mean, I feel kind of stupid now because when I say it, I say it out loud, it seems so obvious. So that book was clearly about that. My second book was um, about it too. I mean, I I treated the accident, I say in the book, like a witness protection program. I just left school and didn't tell anybody about it and then came to New York and tried to become a writer. My second book is about a guy who had a secret in his past and he... Um, came to New York and tried to become a famous boxer and was an imposter. And so obviously that was how I felt about myself. You know, I was, and I didn't realize I was writing about that. My third book is about a family in Long Island where I grew up that has a terrible secret in a court case. And so obviously I was writing about this all the time without realizing <laughs> it. Was only, it was only like when I was finishing the draft of Half-Life where I was like, oh God, this is what all these books have been about. Well, see, no, but this is the thing. Okay, for me as a reader... And I don't know if this is, you know, specific to me and my particular tastes and books and how I approach it. But, you know, reading Half a Life, it, it's like the Rosetta Stone for all your work. It's like, you, you know, kind of like, I, I don't know, I find that extremely fascinating. It's why I think I do this show. I like to talk to writers and find out their story and how they came to write and how they work and why they do what they do and all the rest. But, you know, if I'm reading, I'll often read, uh, you know, all of a writer's fiction if I if I'm really into them. And then I'll read... Uh, you know, everything I can find after that in terms of memoir, autobiography, biography, etc., to try to figure out the underpinnings of it. Yeah, I think that I mean, that's what makes us writers, right? I mean, I think if you, if you, um, if you like the writer, it's kind of like, uh, I think there's lines from Martin Amos where he first read something by Uptake and he realized, oh shit, now I've got to read everything this guy wrote because I really like him. So I think we just, if you like a writer, you just sort of get that obsessive 
thing about it where you just say, okay, I've got to then swallow this guy's whole, uh, you know how you pronounce it, Uber? I never know how to pronounce it. I, I actually said that in one of the episodes of the podcast, and it tripped me up because I, I, I feel idiotic saying the word. I think it's an Uber. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that sounds right. Yeah. But, but so what I was going to say about, about fits with me is like, um, there's a line from, from Sal Bella that I've always liked, which is, he said, I don't go to therapy because I don't want to know why I'm writing what I'm writing. So now I know, like, it took me this book to realize, oh shit, this is what my fiction's been about. So I'm kind of worried now that now that I know, and I ha- I think you're right, it is like the Rosetta Stone. Now that you know what it is, is it, gonna, is it going to be too self-conscious? Well, but maybe, but the other side of it could be that maybe now you can work from a different place or, you know, your work can take on a new... Uh, boldness or you know you know what I'm saying like it could it seems to me like a book like this and I know that it's a little bit hackneyed to talk about how writing a memoir can be um, you know a a cathartic experience for the author and I don't want to get too mushy about it but it does seem like putting this story to paper with the amount of effort and clarity that you know that that you um, that you put into it you know the, the amount of effort that you put into it and the clarity that you achieved it's got to have, uh, you know, it's got to feel good in some way, right? I mean, well, thanks, man. I mean, I know, yeah, thanks for saying that. I mean, it definitely is cathartic. Um, I hope you're right about the other stuff. It, it's funny. I, I remember reading somewhere someone saying, writing is too hard to be cathartic. If you're doing it well enough, it can't be cathartic. And so I always believe that, but I mean, I feel like I wrote the book well, and it was total catharsis. I mean, it was like therapy. And people always ask you, that's, that's, the diff- that's the big difference between writing a memoir and writing a novel, is like, writing a memoir is like an open-air therapy session. All the questions that, readings are like, are you, are you okay, or how do you feel about this? If you write a novel, no one gives a shit, no one's like, hey, you finish your book, how do you feel? Yeah, right. You know? Right. So it's really weird. Like, I always feel like that's, that should be kind of secondary. Like, I feel better, definitely, about it, writing, having written the book. So that, that should be irrelevant to the book, right? I mean, it's, you don't judge a book on how the author feels afterwards. But that's just the nature of memoirs, I guess. It's, it's, I mean, it's like, I can, see the, I can see part of the appeal of memoirs. It's like uh, you get to meet the character. If you, if you go to a reading, you get to meet one of the characters in a book you like. Like, you can't, you can't read Portnoy's complaint and then go meet Portnoy, you know? But if you like a memoir, you can go meet... You know, if you like um, Year of Magical Thinking, you can go talk to Joan Didion as a reading and find out how she's doing now. And in a novel, the character's life ends at the end of the book, but in a memoir, it goes on, obviously, after that. And so you can see, like, how is the character doing? We all would love to know, like, how is, uh, you know, how's, how are Levin and Kitty doing at the end of, after the end of Anna Karenina? Right. Well, I mean, it's a different experience. It's, I mean, it's a different creative experience and like one of the questions uh with the memoir and particularly considering the book's length that occurs to me is you know it's only 200 pages or you know it's only how many i don't even know how many words it is what is it a thirty thousand word book somewhere in there it's 30 yeah it's 30 i mean yeah my um my first book is a hundred thousand words it was 300 pages this is thirty thousand words i mean if, if it had been if it had been regularly margined it would have been probably 100 pages okay so but how long i'm curious to know the difference between writing this book which is significantly shorter than your fiction uh in terms of the the amount of time it took you because it sort of seems to me just from the outside looking in that even though it's short 
that the level of precision that you were going for intellectually and with regard to the language and the way that the the, the tale is told, it, did it take you about as long as the other books, or was it a shorter period of time to write? It was longer and shorter at the same time. I mean, I think it took me it took me twenty years to be able to write about it. So I was I was thinking it through the whole time. Um, so once I committed to writing about it, it was quicker. Um, it took me it took me years to write my first book. I mean, I had a real job at the time. Uh, yeah, it usually takes me a couple of years at least. And this one this one I wrote in, in under a year. I think part of it was the length, and part of it was just there's there's something easier about memoir because you don't have to invent stuff. So that, you know, you, so, I mean, the challenge is to find the structure in the real story. But you don't have to invent a story. You don't have to worry about it being believable. So there's less time sort of fretting about, does this make sense or is this really possible when you know it's a true story? So I think that um, the length and the fact that I wasn't inventing and the fact that I've been chewing it over for 20 years. Um, I was, yeah, I was going to say that that you make a great point. I mean, it's it's you wrote it in less than a year, but it really took you 20, 20 years to write it. Yeah, I wasn't... I mean, there's no way I could have written it before... Uh, for my other books for a lot of reasons. I mean, because I think you're right. If the other work was a Rosetta Stone for, for I mean, if, if the accident was a Rosetta Stone for the other work, then maybe the work was in some way cathartic without my realizing it. I mean, I was working through issues of the self and everything. Also, I learned how to write better. I mean, I, you're, I think you're just better with your fourth book than you are with your first book. Or at least you know how to do... At least you know how to... It's not like everyone's fourth book is better than their first book because usually sometimes first books are the best books people write, but you know something about putting a book together by your fourth book that you didn't put in your first, and so I, I'm not sure I would have been able to write this book, because it is tricky. I mean, you want it to be emotionally affecting, but you don't want to be sentimental. You want to be honest about your feeling, but you don't, you don't want to be um, self-absorbed. So to, in order to make it emotional, but not sentimental, and, and honest, but not but not uh, narcissistic. I mean, that's a hard that's a hard thing. So I think it took a little bit of craft to get it to the right the right level. Well, how many yeah how many pages did you cut? I mean, did you find yourself really reworking a lot of it, or did did you feel like it came out mostly whole and then you just refined it? Yeah, I'm not the I'm not a kind of writer who could. I'm not. It's it's funny. I'm not like a. I don't think I'm not, I'm naturally that gifted a writer. Uh, I, it takes me a long time. So there, I'm always amazed when people are like, even students of mine, when they say, like, I wrote this in one night. I just can't, I don't work that way. I work really slowly and I write a, a pretty crappy paragraph and then I work at it, work at it, and get that one pretty good and then move on. So, I'm, so it takes me a long time to get a draft. So it's, I'm not someone who writes a quick first draft and then and then goes back. I mean, I revise so much as I go that hopefully when I'm done with with the draft, it doesn't need that much work because I've I've fucked with it so often, you know. Right. Do you ever worry that you're gonna you're gonna screw it up by by messing around with it so much, or do you know? Do you oh, know? all the time, yeah, yeah, all the time. I mean, I, I'm often surprised. You know, I'll work on something, and I'll think it's pretty good, and then I will go back and stumble on like an earlier version of the same draft and realize that it did better before I worked too much. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is that it, it, part of it, you know, they're, they're, everyone always talks about the most obvious element of discipline that goes into writing or, or, you know, any art, really. And that's, you know, you get up, you have to sit in the chair every day, you have to do the work, 
but there's also a, yeah. an element of discipline involved in knowing when to step away. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like uh, I mentioned, um, my friend David Lipsky before he teaches uh, at NYU too, and he he was teaching a class on uptake, and he realized that uh, that you know that huge book of Updike's early stories, which is like it's just amazing that his career was that long where early stories are like 30 years of work, but it's like every story he wrote from 1958 or something to 1980. It's just this huge omnibus book. And, um, going through it to teach David realized that, um, Updike had revised heavily. And so he, he found that in almost every case he made his, his, he made the stories worse. And so he, he uses that as a, so my friend uses that as a craft lesson and, and, in his class, he'll say, "Look at look at how much better it was in the original than the later." And obviously, it's not, it's not like Uptake became a worse writer. I mean, nothing could get worse. The more time you stick your ass in the chair, you probably get better. But you just when you polish something so much, you can over polish it. Well, yeah. I and mean, the other thing too is that if you like give in to that that sort of uh, uh, you know the the manic impulse to go back and mess with a story that you wrote ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. It's going to be right. hard, it's going to be hard to replicate the same creative state that you were in when you wrote it. Yeah, but then but this, this is why writing is so hard because then at the same time you have to go back and rewrite because that's the main thing. I mean, I really I wasn't being um, like overly modest. I don't think that my first drafts are that good. I just know that I've got to really work at it to get them good. And I, and I remember when I went to graduate school to get my MFA. It wasn't necessarily the people who were the most talented who got published. It was the people who were willing to to take their pretty good first draft and make it really good. I think that everyone at that level was able to do a pretty good first draft. And so it was the people who could take criticism, the people who could see what was wrong with their with their work and make it better. And then people also had the discipline to, to sit there. Because sometimes, it's, you, you know, if the first draft takes a month, the, the second draft takes another two months. So it's, discipline is, is so important, and rewriting is so important. So of course you've got to be able to do that. So that, that's the balance that's so hard because if you don't rewrite, then then it's probably going to be it's definitely going to be worse than if you do. But then when do you know when to stop? Well, I mean, but I mean, with regard to the whole Updike story and, and uh, you know Lipsky and teaching that class, like just to make sure I'm clear, was he reading? Like later editions of stories that Updike, yeah. Updike had noodled with all you know many years later, like in a, in kind of yeah. A, so what happened was he had um, he wrote he wrote you know tons of stories from the fifties to the nineties uh, and beyond. You know I guess he died in two thousand ten probably. So uh, so he he put out a book of every story from from the fifties to the eighties, and so he was comparing that book that came out in two thousand five. Of books of stories from the 50s to the 80s, and comparing them with the original with the original books they first came out in. So he was, you see, like um, the stories from Pigeon Feathers were just much better in the book Pigeon Feathers, which came out in 1963, I think, than they were in the 2005 version. So so Updike as a 70 year old went back and changed what Updike as a 30 year old did. Yeah, you can't and do you that. Figure, but you figure you should be able to, right? I mean, if you've you've got 40 more years of writing under your belt. So you figure, yeah, it must be better than I was then. I don't know, though. But, I mean, I don't know. It's like it's like I think you gotta. I think you have to labor over it, no doubt. And I think rewriting is obviously huge. But I feel like once something's done, to revisit it all those years later when you're in a totally different place in your life, 
there could be some dissonance. Yeah. You know, it can get dangerous. <laughs> Definitely, and uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and some, the dissonance is a really good point. But I also think there's just something about maybe you just can't see your own stuff. You know, on the thirtieth draft. <laughs> You know, you're so familiar with it. How can you even know what's what's better or what's worse? You're just sick of it. Yeah, and you just have to let it be. I mean, you know, at some point, you just have to let it be what it is. And and I think that's a huge part of the creative process. Like, um, there's a. Do you ever see um the player, the movie, uh, Six Degrees of Separation, where the whole the with whole the, thing is comes it from? Will Smith? Yeah, yeah. Years ago, yeah. I mean, it's been a long time, but yeah, I did see it. There's a part in there that I thought was really interesting about the writing process but even though it's a, the story was about painting but it seems like it's probably about writing too um the story about a guy whose whose kid was in a kindergarten class and all the kids from kindergarten were coming home with these beautiful paintings like uh the kids were finger painting and they came back looking like mark roscoe's or some you know some brilliant abstract expressionist and so the the father who was an art dealer went to the teacher and said, what are you teaching these kids? It's amazing. How do you do it? And she said, I just know when to take the paper away. Hmm. So I think that, you know, that's really interesting. Like, you know, one of the big things about the creative process is knowing when to stop. I have a friend who is a writer who, I'm, I won't say his or her name because it's an embarrassing story, but when this person's first book came out, um, he, I'll say it to he, he yeah. went around to every, it, it was his first book and he it came out, and he read it and realized there were some things he would change. So he went to every bookstore in New York City and corrected it and put it back on the shelf in pen. So people were buying these books and opening up and saying, wait, someone wrote in here? Oh, I guess this is better. <laughs> it's like the ultimate <laughs> writer's neurosis. You just have to get it, you know. I, I, I can relate to that, like wanting to go into I can relate to it, too. Ugh. But, you know, but at, at that point, it's probably gone from... Uh, a real professionalism into an unhealthy obsession. You know, what's well, yeah. the book in the stores? You you can't grab it out of someone's hand and, and cut this line of dialogue. Well, no, I mean I have fantasies because I I struggle with this with my first novel, which like I have mixed feelings about. Uh, like I'm glad it exists, and I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm happy it got published. I don't want to sound too uh, negative about it, but I also have. That you know that writer thing where I look at it and I go, oh my god, it's just filled with mistakes, and I could have done better. And I sort of have this, you know, I have these fantasies of, of uh, like burning it <laughs> in, in, in yeah, a large pile, you know, like you know, sort of, sort of jokingly, but sort of not jokingly. And I think uh, you know, I had a conversation with another writer on this show, and uh, you know, the, the I think it was I think it was Blake Butler, but he basically just said. You know, the book that you that you write is is sort of a snapshot of your mind or your soul at that particular time in your life, and it is what it is. You know, and and you move on from it, and you write the next book, and uh, you know, it inevitably will reflect where you are at the time that it's being written, and you just have to kind of let them go. Yeah, it's funny, but there, are, I think that's exactly right. But then there are some stories about I think like Salman Rushdie's first novel, you can't get. Because it, like he asked that it be removed. Well, from, Stan, yeah, Stanley Kubrick did that with his first film. Like he actually, bought, yeah. I want to say he bought the rights to it and like you know actively suppressed it. <laughs> no, I know there's a, other, a bunch of stories like that. I can't remember someone else with their first novel bought bought it up. I don't know who was it, but 
I think Rusty did the same thing. It's just like, well, maybe I'll do that. Maybe that'll be my. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't because <laughs> I'm going to extinguish it's it. Silly. And, and and if if you know, <laughs> but if people know, if people know your work, then it'll be it'll be interesting to see how how bad you sucked back at the beginning. No, but, <laughs> no, but it might be it might be kind of nice to see your progression for someone who's a fan to see your progression. Yeah, no, I mean it, it is it is kind of I mean. There's something really cool about like uh you see that um the thing in the New Yorker a couple of years ago they published uh the unedited version of Carver's what we talk about when we talk about love like the first draft yeah but wasn't that about wasn't that about like uh got I'm going to I'm going to screw this up was it Gordon Lish yeah it was Gordon Lish like they said that Gordon Lish had totally re- redone it and ed- and overedited it and so here's the original I think everyone that I talked to agreed that the list version is much, much better. Yeah. But it ended up being kind of a nice lesson in, like, even a really good story has a crappy first draft. Yeah, well, yeah, Carver was... I remember that. He was notoriously... I mean, he was, like, 25 drafts on every story. I mean, he was really... At least that's what I've read, you know? And I, I think Lish had, like, a really big impact on his whole style. I mean, I, that was, like, a pretty, yeah. pretty important editorial relationship and... You know. Yeah, I think eventually he didn't need he didn't need Lish, but at that point in his career he did, and so it ends up being a good story for reasons that maybe Carver's family didn't even know when they decided to do it because uh, they were they wanted to show like, look, he didn't need Lish, but in, but what the lesson is, I think, is like he did need him at that point in his career, and it is inspiring to see that a good writer can have a really shitty draft and can become better. Right. And so by the time he moved away from Lish, he didn't need him anymore. But at that point, even a, even this kind of iconic story was crappy and so it's nice to remember that when you're struggling through your first draft and you know it's kind of shitty like well even the story that has such an impact that anytime i mean i feel like that's the story that's most referenced by magazine editors like five times a year you'll see like what we talk about when we talk about spring movies or what we talk about when we talk about skiing <laughs> right like you know it's right. such a famous title you know yeah and and even that was a was a pretty shitty first draft so that's it's nice to know so maybe someone will see the first book and compare it to your latest stuff and be like hey actually he did get better and that's kind of inspiring by itself yeah yeah i mean there's like you know and the other thing too is that you know with respect to your work like you never know how it's going to hit people like different people obviously are going to have different opinions of it and I've heard, you know, all writers eventually, if they if they're read uh, by at least a few people, you'll wind up hearing just about everything. I mean, with yeah. with this book, Half a Life, and I mean, most of your books have done really well critically. Uh, you know, you've had uh, good fortune in that regard. But I mean, you must have received a lot of feedback uh, on Half a Life in particular. Am, am I correct in saying that? I mean, did, did this book generate more yeah, yeah. reader response than than the fiction? It did in a different way, and I, you're right. I have been really lucky, and I, I was really lucky with this book. And I was scared, in a way, I hadn't been before, because I, you know, like you said, if you're read, you're going to get different responses, and so you're going to get some bad reviews, and and those hurt. Obviously, especially if it's in a big place, and you know a lot of people are reading it. But it, it's different when it's about yourself. So memoir, the reviews are scarier because if someone doesn't like the book, they they don't can like very, <laughs> They can very directly say we didn't like. You know, if they don't like your novel in a way, they don't like you too because you're putting your whole self in there. But the memoir, they can just come out and say we don't like this person <laughs> in a way that is pretty scary. So I, I was pretty lucky because the reviews were pretty good. But the, but um, but yeah, the responses have been different. You know, like with the novel, if you write 
if someone takes the time to write you, it's either I liked the book or I didn't like the book, and that's pretty much it. But when you share something personal, you hear strange things. I mean, people have told me um, things that they said they didn't tell anybody. Like a woman wrote me saying, I haven't ever told my husband this, but I'm going to tell you this. And it, it wasn't even that big a thing. And that's why I think the book has resonated too, because like, uh, what was it? You don't what, talk what, about these things. Uh, it, you're, well, you're, you're not going to yeah. tell me. You're not going to tell me. What no, you no, told I'll tell, I will tell, uh, no, I'll tell you. I just want to tell you her name because, but, uh, but so I think part of the book is how these things, um, if you don't talk about them, they, they have a power over you. So I didn't talk about the accent forever. And it is a huge thing that, that defined who I was to myself. And now that it's out there, I feel like I, I've, I don't want to say got free from it because these things are, uh, you know, someone died, so it's never going to leave me, but, uh, but it doesn't have as much power over me. Right. So this, this woman wrote me so, saying, like, uh, when she was eight, her father died, and she laughed at his funeral because uh, she just was overwhelmed with emotion and didn't know how to respond, and she was eight, so she just giggled her way through the whole thing. And she felt so bad about that for 30, 40, 50 years that she, um, that she never told anyone. But then when she told me, she realized, you know, I was an eight-year-old kid. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. But I mean, because because she had it, kept it in, she thought this, it was a terrible, shameful thing. So telling me made her realize, oh God, I, I could tell my husband that. That's not a terrible thing. I mean, it's 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 sad, and you know. Um, but it's, it's so it's so wrong, natural. It's, it's so, so relatable. It's so relatable. I could. I mean. Yeah. Not exactly. for not for a second would I ever think to condemn somebody for that, especially if they were a child. It just seems like exactly the kind of thing a child would do. Exactly. And so that but because she didn't because she didn't tell anyone, it, it had become this giant thing in her head. And so that was I think really that was the thing that was really liberating liberating the lame word. Another thing that was really great for me about writing the book was that people would write me these emails like that and then realize that these things that sometimes these things that have power over them could easily be vanquished. Like that was a, a thing that she, when she got it out off her chest, she was able to live her life in a way she hadn't been before. Well, now did you write and back? Did you write that, everybody back? Like everyone who contacted you, did you take time to respond to, or was it just in? I did. No, I did. I did. And, um, it was, uh, that was, that was difficult because, um, it was difficult for a lot of reasons. I mean, sometimes it was emotionally difficult because people were telling me some, heavy stuff. And, you know, I, I kind of wrote the book and wanted to put this behind me, the accident. And then hearing from many people who had been in similar situations. Uh, so it was emotionally taxing, but also it was just a lot of time because um, I just heard from a lot of people. Uh, but I felt like I owed it to them. If they're taking the time to write me with their personal stories, it's kind of shitty not to respond. So I tried to respond to every single one, yeah. You should have just been, you should just put it on autoresponder, you know, like, thanks for sending me, <laughs> yes, thanks, for, thanks for sending me your darkest secret, you know, have a nice day, Darren. <laughs> your darkest secret slash happy story slash whatever, you know. <laughs> and, then, um, and then use an emoticon and sign off. Yes, <laughs> just a guy, like a little, a little uh, smiling face with a tear. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, um, I, uh, what this I was going to say, but I forgot, I definitely, um, I, I had some relationships with those people. Like I, I'm sort of friendly with some people now. I've heard from. Um, well, that's I would cool. love to publish. The, I would love to publish. And there's just too many people to um, get permission from. But I, some of the emails are so powerful, and I think it would be great to publish the emails. I mean, the woman telling me that story was great because 
she was so emotionally, she was so worked up by this thing that ended up being, it was a nothing thing. Like you said, it's, it's almost expected that an eight-year-old wouldn't have had to handle it and would act in that way. Yeah. So like emails like that were really, and some of them were, were you know, more difficult to have people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and with PTSD or, you know, some people who were, well, yeah, because you had PTSD. I mean, correct? Is that is that fair to say? I mean, do you? I think I probably did. Yeah. I mean, I was undiagnosed, but but uh, how could you? In not? researching the book, in researching the book, I I realized, oh God, yeah, I certainly had, I certainly had that. Um, I found out that uh, an interesting fact is that people who were in my there was a study done in uh, by George Washington University um, about these kind of accidents. And it said that people who are found not to be at fault in an in a automobile death often suffer post-traumatic stress syndrome or are more likely to suffer post-traumatic stress syndrome than are uh, drunk drivers, people who are definitely at fault. Hmm. And I think it's because um, if you don't know what you would have done differently, your mind is just kind of uh, spinning its wheels, you know? So I was, I think if you were drunk, you could say like, God, if only I hadn't had a drink. But if, you know, with me, I would run over that. Uh, I, would, I would play over that that moment again and again and try to figure out what I would do differently, and I couldn't think of anything. Right. But having, but even saying that, I, I, it seems hard to believe because I, the one thing that made me able to live with myself and live with this was knowing that it wasn't my fault. Um, and so those are some of the painful emails I heard from because some people wrote me saying it was my fault. I was in a, I was involved in a car accident and died, and I, I was drunk, and so I didn't really know what to say to those people. Um, but I felt like I owed it to everyone to write back and to try to engage. Sure. I mean, one, one difficult thing was I was doing a, a local uh, radio show, and it was like a call-in thing. Someone called in and he said, um, "You know, my, I was in a car accident. My, uh, my wife and daughter um, were injured." No, my my daughter died. My wife is now paraplegic, and the driver uh, was at fault. Uh, should I reach out to the driver? And I said, God, I don't know. You know, I I just felt so bad for him. You know, he's got his life was ruined by this accident. Like his he's he had to quit his job and take care of his paraplegic wife, and his daughter's dead. So it's not for me to say whether he should reach out to this driver or not. And so I said, Did you do you want to? And he said, I don't think so. I had to say, well, I guess he shouldn't, but it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't have, I just, I wrote a book. I don't know the answers. Yeah. Well, that's a good answer. <laughs> you know, especially <laughs> in, it's one thing if somebody emails you and you have time to compose your thoughts, but you know, on live radio with somebody who's dealing with something that heavy, that's, that's not easy. <laughs> and, you know, the, one of the funny things was like, um, and this was, this was great. It was nice, but it didn't, it didn't happen. And, uh, it's nice that it almost happened. Like the producers from Oprah liked the book, and they were, was, Oprah was wrapping up her show, and so her producer was saying, "Well, we'd like to have you on the show." And I was very excited, obviously. Uh, they were saying, well, "You know, we think Oprah's last book club is going to be Freedom." So you know, I get screwed by friends. I was going to say, <laughs> but, uh, that "There's some, some sort of poetry." I was going to ask you, like, you know, you didn't have like the, you didn't have any reservations about Oprah's book club, but you didn't have like that. <laughs> No, God, no. <laughs> but, but this is the thing, though. So so they said, well, we'd like to try to figure out the, a way to get you on anyway if we can't do it as a book club book. So I said, sure, that would be great. And then they said, well, here's a show that you could maybe help out with. Like a woman was raped um, by a guy her boyfriend knew, 
And so she's dealing with this now. And so you dealt with something hard. Would you come on and tell her how to deal with it? And I had to say, uh, no, you know, uh, I'd love to come on Oprah. I'm sure it would have helped with book sales and everything, but that's just morally, uh, dubious. I, I don't know anything about rape. You know, I, I can't come on her show and be a counselor. I'm just a guy who wrote a book. So I had to, you know, I had to say no at that point to it's a moment of strength. Two moments, you know, uh, I think it was the right call. No, no, it sounds like it. I mean, you know, as tough as it would be to, to turn down an invite, but uh, you got it's got to be under the right circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I feel good about it now. It was a hard thing to do to say no, but I felt like I can't. That would really dishonor the memory of the girl who died uh, in my story if I just used it to go on TV. And it also would be unfair to the woman who suffered this rape. I mean, I, it was just a strange, it was a strange thing that they thought that I could go on. And yeah, as, a, as a literary writer who, who happened to write a memoir that I could go on and counsel a woman how to deal with this rape. But, you know, <laughs> TV is a weird place, I guess. It's a little tone deaf, uh, you know. It seems a little tone deaf. Yeah. I don't know how close it came to actually happening, but, uh, but I, I, I said no before it, before it started. Well, you know, I kind of want to – I do have a question I want to ask you about um, the, the process of writing a memoir and uh, memory because to write a book like this and to write it as vividly as you have, you have to have uh, a pretty good memory or it would seem that way. And, you know, there's also the unreliability of memory. And when you're dealing with something as delicate as this, I'm curious to know, you know, how did you square that? Did you find yourself struggling to remember things? Because – I hear different things. Like somebody will go through something really traumatic and they'll have like a crystalline memory of it. Uh, and then I've, I've also heard of people going through something really traumatic and like drawing a complete blank where it's, it basically doesn't exist in their brain because they were so traumatized by it that they kind of blacked out. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to, that was really, that was part of the whole process. I and mean, I wanted just to, I wanted to be honest about that. I mean, there's certain things I didn't remember. And I just didn't want to put them in. Uh, Here's an interesting story about that. So I was going to change something for the paperback because because um, in the in the book I talk about going to her funeral with my dad and my mom didn't come. Well, the book came out, my mom read it, and she said, you know, I was there. I should, you know, you've got to change that. I, I, was, I went to the funeral. You're wrong. So I was going to change it for the paperback, and then I realized I'm not writing a history book. I'm writing a memoir, and that's the story... I mean, it has the etymology of memory. It's, a, it's about my memory. And so I felt like if I changed it to say that she was there when I didn't remember her being there, in a way that would be less truthful and there would be less true because I'd, be I'd be running about something I didn't remember. So I felt like I had to leave it as it was because, A, maybe her memory is wrong, and B, I can only write honestly about what I remember and I don't remember her being there. So if I had to go and change it, I would be, I would, in a way, it would feel like a lie. That's fascinating. You just remember your, it was you and your dad. Yeah, and so I left it that way. Huh. I mean, just, it's, it's just interesting to me why that would be. You know what I'm saying? Like how the, it would, that would yeah, register, register in your brain that way. Maybe your dad was like in your ear more during that time or whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to, um, I was talking to uh, Danny Shapiro about that. Cause she, she um, you know, is a novelist who wrote memoirs, and she was, um, she was saying that she, uh, we wrote something, uh, in a book that was 20 years, she wrote short, short a scene about her life, and then wrote it uh, again 20 years later, and realized that it, in the first instance it was her and her dad, and the second instance it was her and her brother, or something like that. 
And so she said, you know, if you write this book in 20 years again, Darren, it'll probably be different if I remember it differently. You just got to write it as honestly as you can. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, sort of validation of my not changing it because I felt like it's probably pretty common. I mean, it, you know, you write a thing that happened years ago, your memories are going to be fallible. So I think the, the key is just you know, talking about that and saying, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe this is, if you don't remember something, in the, if you don't remember something, then, then be honest about it in the book and say, I didn't remember this, but this is my best guess of what happened. Well, and then, you know, you, you were talking about your family, uh, you know, in the context of those memories. And I'm, I'm also interested to know, I mean, you're a, you're a parent and, you know, you got to that place in your life where you're married and you have children and then you wrote this book, correct? Yes. I mean, do you feel like there was some connection between having your own kids and being able to uh, write this thing? Did that have any bearing on it? Yeah, it was the entire thing. I, think. I mean, I... Um I wasn't ever going to write this book. I was just going to, you know, write my novels and not write it. But then um, my wife uh, was pregnant with my twin sons. And you have twins. I mean, how how, how perfect is that? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really funny because, um, you know, like uh, both from Chang and Ang and also the mother of the girl who died saying you have to live for two people. I mean, there's... There are these weird things that, you know. That's really, I mean, that gives me the chills. I mean, did, when you found out yeah. that you were having twins, did you sort of, I mean, what did, what was your response? It was crazy. I mean, because, you know, we didn't do IVF or anything like that. It was just a complete surprise. Wow. Uh, and they're identical twins. Um, but anyway, so, so she, my wife was pregnant. I was 36. And I realized, you know what? I'm exactly ha- twice as old as I was when this happened. Uh, so I've lived exactly as long with this as I did before it. And I also understood, I think, more viscerally what it would be like to lose a child when you're about to become a parent. It just hit me more hard, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I decided to start writing it down. And like I said, you know, I, I consider myself a fiction writer, so I probably should have written it as a novel, or, but it never occurred to me to write it as a novel. And I couldn't figure out why. And everyone was saying, you know, this is pretty personal stuff why don't you just write a novel about it? Then no one will know what's really happened to you or something. And I just didn't feel like it, I didn't feel like it should be a novel. I couldn't figure out why until recently. Because when I went back to writing fiction, I, I realized, for me, novels are fun. And I mean, even, even depression, even sad novels, there's got to be some element of like, of play in there where you can, you know, have, have fun with the material. And I felt like I can't do that with this because that would be really disrespectful. This is something that, this girl died, and I can't have that attitude of play and fun with the material. So I've got to tell the story straight uh, in a truthful, respectful way, and and uh, and the only way to do that, I guess, is to write a memoir. Yeah, I mean, it's just and thing. I think too, like books, they they, they take the form they're supposed to take. You know, there's not like I don't think there's. Yeah. I don't know if there's two or three different ways to tell this story. I don't think there's a novel, but you know what I'm saying. I feel like it kind of has to be what it is. I think that's exactly right, and that's one of the things that's hard about a book, and that's why I think sometimes it takes a long time. You know, if you write a book and you start something, and you realize, oh God, this has to be third person. I got to go back and rewrite this whole, yeah, this whole three or four chapters or whatever it is. Yeah, I think good books. You know, the reason that's so, I think that's why it's so hard. There's a great Philip Roth quote about the difference between being a famous writer, or no, the difference between being a professional writer and a 
famous swimmer or an Olympic swimmer. <laughs> this is a really good story so far. <laughs> the difference between being a difference between being an Olympic swimmer and a professional writer is that the Olympic swimmer doesn't feel like she's going to drown every time she jumps in the pool. <laughs> That's about right. That's like Philip Roth, you know, like he's the most lauded American writer, and he wrote that a couple of years ago. Like he feels like he's drowning every time he starts a new book. No, I've, um, I've, I think I might have even shared this anecdote before. But one of the anecdotes that I cling to is, uh, you know, in some interview, Philip Roth was talking about how he does a book. And basically, he'll fin- oh, yeah. he'll finish a novel, and then the next part of the process for him is to write like five or six hundred pages. Uh, you know, he writes every day. He's kind of a full timer, and then he'll get like five or six hundred pages down. And of that five or six hundred pages that he writes, like five or ten of the pages will be worth a shit. <laughs> and, yeah, and then he'll start writing his next book. So yeah, I remember hearing that too. I think that's amazing. Like he'll 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 just yeah, he'll just like uh, figure out what he's what he whose characters are. He'll just write. And write and write, and then at the end of the hundred or two hundred pages, whatever it is, then it'll start the book. And I think that's amazing. I mean, <clears throat> how many of us would love to have those discarded two hundred pages of uh, whatever it is? You know, I'm sure that's better than most. The stuff he throws out is probably better than most people's finished books. But but it demystifies it. Demystifies it. It demystifies it. You know, it's like even the the guy who's like you know among the best is working that way. It's sort of you know, it's comforting in a way, but it also doesn't give you any wiggle room uh, in terms of making excuses. You just have to sit down and do the work. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that's amazing. I feel like uh, when, you, when I'm dealing with students who don't want to do a second draft, they'll be like, my first draft is pretty good. I feel like, you know, Philip Roth and and Laurie Moore and uh, you know, Nabokov talked about how they did many drafts. And so do you think you're a better writer than Nabokov? Like your first draft is good enough and his, his wasn't? Right. Have a little humility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's been great to talk with you. Uh, I, you know, I can't say enough good things about Half a Life, and uh, I appreciate the time. And you know, I'm curious. Oh, thanks, what, what, man. It was great. Are you working on another novel right now? Yeah, I'm actually working on two things. I wanted to do something really light after this project, and so <laughs> I was going to say. The, <laughs> but so that guy I mentioned, my my friend uh, David Lipsky, is a really great writer who. Um, he wrote uh, Absolutely American about West Point, which is a huge bestseller. And he also wrote, um, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself about his... his uh, yeah, I read that. David Foster Wallace. I read yeah. that. I really like that. Yeah, they're really good books. He's great. And so he and I had this idea for a young adult adventure series. And so we're writing a young adult adventure series together, which has been fun and interesting to work with another writer. So we're just having fun with that. And then I'm also writing a... Um, uh, another literary novel, which um, I want to be the first uh, first grade uh, real estate novel. There you go, staking out new. I mean, not to not to make too bad of a pun, <laughs> exactly. but staking out new territory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best with what, it. What, what are you working on? What are, what are you working on? If I can ask real quick. No, no, I'm working on a novel right now, and uh, you know, str- not right now as I'm talking to you, but right now I'm working on one. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's about a. Uh, a high school teacher. That's the, oh, cool. Yeah, it's a high school teacher. That's where I'm at, and you know, it's right now. It has me. Uh, it has me by the tail, but hopefully, I'll be able to turn the tables. Yeah, I think if it if it didn't, it wouldn't be any good, right? That's right. You got to go through this. Um, well, anyway, thanks for thanks for uh, for calling me up. It was great talking with you. I hope I hope, it, uh, I hope it's a good show. Excellent, man. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
Okay, folks, there you have it. That's the program. That is Darren Strauss. If you want to find him on the web, you can go to DarrenStrauss.com. His name is spelled D-A-R-I-N, and his last name is S-T-R-A-U-S-S. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, his handle is at Darren Strauss. The book, once again, is Half a Life, available now from McSweeney's. Truly a great read. Go and get it. Read it in the middle of the night. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary book. Uh, quickly, this show has a website, otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, some other quick plugs. Holiday shopping season is here. The Nervous Breakdown has an extraordinary deal going. Uh, truly insane. It's called the TNB Book Club Holiday Six Pack. If you sign up now... You get, you get six books for $9.99 delivered to your door in December. And then you get a book a month thereafter for only $9.99 a month. This is a great gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving. And better yet, it helps me keep the show going when people join the TNB Book Club. To do so, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar, and sign up. Also, tomorrow night, December 1, uh, the TNB Literary Experience is happening at Stories, Books, and Cafe in Echo Park in Los Angeles. I will be reading along with Lenore Zion, Vanessa Carlisle, and Claire Bidwell-Smith. Gina Frangello, TNB Fiction Editor, is going to be the MC. Should be a fun night. If you're in town, please come join us. Starts at 730. Uh, what else? I don't think I have anything else. It's nightfall. Uh, I can hear footsteps upstairs. I don't know if you can hear that. Uh, my neighbor's apartment. There's a lot of noise up there. It sounds almost like somebody's dancing. Uh, I have to go to the mall. I'm out of time. Uh, you know, I've talked enough. I'm out of time. Even though, oh, one thing I do have to say. Don't. Uh, I wanted to remind you. If you like the show and you want to help a little bit, it's an easy thing to do. Go to iTunes and give the show a good rating. And if you're feeling really generous, write a nice review. That helps. It helps get the word out. It helps the show get better placement on iTunes and so on. So that's it. I promise. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the great music. Check them out at killrockstars.com. Thank you for listening. I'll be back again soon. I'm out of time, even though time doesn't exist. Don't forget, it's a mental construct. Time does not exist. It's all just a dream. <laughs> <laughs>